I appreciate that Jeremy said, let's continue to worship because the sermon is also time for us to worship. Just not through singing, it's through hearing the word. Um, before, oh geez, I'm going to move this, there we go. Uh, before I get started, uh, as Jeremy prayed, I, I just want to thank you for your care and concern and, and prayers um, as I've been you know, recovering and everything. Um, especially praying for Lindsay as she's picked up my slack and had to deal with my impatience and all of that. So thank you. Um, After a brief hiatus, uh, we are returning to the book of Leviticus, and we're we're here in the home stretch, uh, just two weeks left. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, working your way uh, through this book as much as I have. My, my hope in this series is, has always been that you would grow in your appreciation for the unity of Scripture um, and the reality that there is one redemptive story traveling from Genesis through to Revelation uh, that Christ is lifted up on every page of the Bible as uh, the one who can rescue us from our sin and reconcile us to right relationship with God. So I hope that you've been seeing that through Leviticus. Uh, that being said, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Leviticus chapter 24. Uh, and I'm going to read the, the, the whole chapter to you. Uh, it's 23 or so verses, I believe. <clears throat> so listen as I read uh, God's word. Leviticus chapter 24. We read this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may, uh, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan, and they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good for life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall, be, shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses." Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll uh, dive in. Lord, 
Would you bless now the reading and the preaching of your word? Would you feed us by your word? You say in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so now we come to you hungry, thirsty souls needing to be nourished by the bread, and the, the food, the refreshing water of your word. So Lord, we pray that you would show us to us the bread of life, living water, your son, Jesus Christ, in these pages, in these verses. Exalt the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in our hearts, in this church, and to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The, the central verse of this passage, and the verse I want to draw your attention to, is verse 15. It's eight words that should make us tremble. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Each of us feels the, the weight of burdens that we carry in our lives. The burden of grieving loved ones that have died. The burden of chronic pain. The burden of strained relationships. The burden of unfulfilled desires, whether it be the desire for marriage or children or a more fulfilling job. And you can fill in the blank with your particular burden. These are burdens that the Lord wisely ordains for us to carry that we might learn more deeply what it is to trust him. You hearing the words coming out of my mouth? Okay. That he ordains these burdens for us to carry that we might learn to trust him. That, that he might fashion in us a heart that says with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so as these burdens weigh on us, God's spirit by his word calls us to do what we read in our call to worship, to cast our burdens on the Lord that he might sustain us. And many of these are burdens that we will carry for the rest of our lives, uh, sorrows that, that, that cannot be removed yet. Yet. The Lord calls us to look to him for strength to carry them till the, the, the day Jesus returns when, when he will right every wrong and wipe away every tear and those burdens will be fully lifted. But there is another burden. There is another burden, and it's a burden that, that you cannot carry. It's a burden that if you try to carry it, will only crush you under its weight. It's a burden that, that's so heavy that, that you could never, ever stand up under it. And it is the burden of your sin. The, the, the trampling force of sin's guilt. The overwhelming load of sin's shame. The crushing weight of sin's consequence. Do, do, do you know what I'm talking about? The burden of sin that weighs upon our souls. Now the author of Hebrews, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, calls his readers to lay aside the weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, he calls his readers to persevere in their faith in God. But he says the precondition for running this race of faith is laying aside anything that would hinder us from running, especially 
the weight of sin. They're like runners who strip off everything. You're like you've never seen a runner in the Olympics running in like baggy jeans and boots. Right? Because runners strip off everything that would hinder them before they, re- they race. And the Christian is called to lay aside the weight of sin, right? to take it off, to put it down, to lay it aside. Guys, are you living the race, running the race of faith while simultaneously being hindered by the weight of sin? Are you living in the joy of your salvation? Are you running the race of faith with endurance? Are you running? Or could it be that you are still trying to carry the burden of your sin? Leviticus 24 is a cautionary passage of Scripture. It's a cautionary passage of Scripture that shows us a holy and just God who, listen, listen to what I say, a holy and just God. These are not words that we just say, a holy and just God who really does hold people accountable for their sin. Do you hear me? There's no hint in this passage of a God who is just willing to overlook sin. He will hold people accountable. But it also points us to how we might be finally and forever free of the burden of sin so that we are not crushed under its weight and so that we are set free to run the race of faith with endurance and joy and rest and peace. Does that sound good? Would you like to move through your life without feeling the crushing burden of sin on your back, set free to run the race of faith with contentment and joy and peace and rest in the knowledge of God. If, you, if, you, if that is you, if you do want that, this passage tells us how we might lay aside this weight, how we might lay aside the weight of sin, the burden of sin. So three things uh, that we need to see here in this passage, and I'm, I'm going a little Dr. Seuss on you here. I got, a little, I got a little rhyme. I want you to see the God who is there, the God who is fair, and the God who will bear. The God who is there, don't laugh at me, Gina. <laughs> she said I can't help it. The God who is there, the God who is fair, and the God who will bear. So the text begins in uh, verses 1 through 9 with the Lord's instructions to Moses about furnishings in the temple, right? specifically the lampstand and the bread of the presence. If you're interested, you can read more about how these are constructed and where they're placed in the temple in Exodus 25 and 37 and then also Numbers 8. But for our purposes, what you need to understand this morning is what they mean. Like, What is the lampstand and the bread of the presence all about? And, and what these things are designed to remind Israel and what they're designed to show us is, in part, who God is. The lampstand and, and, and the, the bread of the presence are designed to show us something of who God is. So look, the lampstand, the menorah, which held seven candles, was placed in the temple to remind Israel that God is the light and the life of his people. That's what the lampstand is all about. God is the light and life of his people. See, God is the, the source of all light and all revelation. He, he's the one who sees all and, and knows all. He's the God who lights up the darkness. He is the light of truth by which everything else must be seen. He's the one who makes himself known to his people. He's a a revelatory God who speaks. Apart from God, we would be left groping in the dark. No way to find God. No way to, to reason, to think, or rightly understand who God is. We'd be groping around in the shadows with no hope. But as the psalmist says, the Lord is a fountain of life, and by his light do we see light. He's the source of all life. He's the one who, before all creation, let's think back to Genesis, right? He's the one who, before 
all creation spoke and there was light shining in the darkness. He's the the self-sustaining flame that Moses saw in the burning bush, right? He's the great I am who has his being in himself and therefore is not dependent on anyone or anything for his being. He's the pillar of fire, I'm trying to help you imagine what the Israelites would have been reminded of when they saw the lampstand in the temple. The pillar of fire that delivered them out of the hands of Egypt and led them in the wilderness. And here in Leviticus, right? if you if remember where we've come and, 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 and what we've seen in Leviticus, he's the glory fire that fills the tabernacle by night, assuring his people of their presence with him. I notice here in the passage, did you, did you notice when I was reading this word regularly that keeps get, getting repeated? Right, verse three, Aaron, or verse, uh, yeah, verse two, the light of the lamp was to be kept burning regularly. Verse three, Aaron was to arrange for the lamps to burn from evening to morning, just like the glory fire before the Lord regularly. Verse four, Aaron was to arrange the lamps of pure gold before the Lord regularly. In other words, this lampstand was to burn continually. That's, that's what's behind that word regularly. This was to burn continually, every day. It's because he is the, the ever-present, ever-watchful God who, who is shining light in the darkness so that nothing is hidden before him. He's the light before whom all people and all hearts and all intentions and all motives and all secrets are exposed. He's the light. But notice also the 12 loaves of bread called the bread of the presence. What do you suppose? We could do a little uh, crowd participation here. What do you suppose the 12 loaves are supposed to symbolize? Yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel. Exactly. Right? Stacked in two piles on a table of gold. So these 12 uh, loaves, a symbol of Israel, it was to be a symbol and a reminder to all Israel that they always lived before the presence of God. They always lived before the presence of God. You see in verse 6, it says that the 12 loaves should be on a set, uh, on, set on the table, and then this phrase, before the Lord. The 12 loaves are always before the Lord. They're always before the presence of the Lord. Now, you might be tempted to think that, uh, that the tabernacle means that God's presence was somehow relegated to this special place that he said he would dwell with his people in the, in the tabernacle, in the tent of the tabernacle. But the, the, the symbolism in these furnishings actually says the exact opposite. God does dwell with his people in a special way in the temple, and yet the, the, the light of the lampstand and the bread of the presence was supposed to remind them that he is the God who made the world and everything in it, and that being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human's hand as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And it was to remind them, uh, Hebrews 4.13, that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He searches all. He knows all. They are before, wherever they are, whether they are in the camp, whether they are out of the camp, whether they are in their beds, whether they are at work with their family or alone, they are before the Lord. It was to remind them that they were to always live their lives quorum Deo. Do you know that Latin phrase, quorum Deo? It means before the face of God. Always before the face of God. Psalm 33, verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. You see, for Israel and for us, no matter where we are, no matter what we are doing, God is there. It's the first point. God is there. He's always there. He sees you. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's the God before whom you will have to give an account. There is no part of your life that is hidden from his sight. He searches every thought, every motivation, every intention. 
You may be able to hide your sin from your spouse, from your friends, from your children, from your employer, from your parents. Where are the kids? Where are my kids? Kids, have you ever, I won't ask you to raise your hands on this. You can just answer this one in your head. Have you ever done something that you knew was wrong, that your parents told you not to do, and then you realize it, and then you try and hide it? You try and cover up your tracks. And a lot of the time, it doesn't work. Like, mommy and daddy are pretty smart, and they figure stuff out. Some of the kids are like, yep, that's true. But sometimes, maybe you get away with it, right? Sometimes, maybe you hide it, and and no one ever finds out. But do you know what this passage is telling us? There is nothing, finally, that will be hidden from God. Kids and parents and adults alike, there is nothing that will finally be hidden from God. There is no hiding your sin, hiding the motivations or intentions of your hearts or your actions from God. He sees all and knows all. And it's this dual reality, right? The reality of our sins and the reality of the ever-present, all-seeing, perfectly just God that places upon our backs the burden of sin's guilt and shame and the dread of one day having to give account for all of it. Now, our passage shows us that God is not only there, but that God is fair. He's not only there, but he's fair. As we move through this passage, we we come across a narrative of a fight that breaks out in the camp, which feels a little bit out of place. As I was reading that passage, did you kind of feel like, whoa, this is kind of coming out of nowhere? You know, we're reading about the bread of the presence and the lampstand there. You're telling me about the story, about this guy getting in a fight. It kind of just seems like it just gets dropped in there out of nowhere. But remember, as we've been working through the book of Leviticus, I've tried to sort of use this analogy with you, right? The book of Leviticus is, is not just like a, a, regul, a book of regulations or an instruction manual. More, it's like a troubleshooting manual. Leviticus is responding to problems. And do you remember the big problem that, that is the sort of overarching problem over the entire book? Do, do you remember it? Everyone's just looking at me. So give me a little, yes. No, you guys refuse. You know, you're free to nod your heads. Okay, well, I'll tell you since you're forgetting. I'll, I'll remind you, right? Leviticus is about how a holy God can dwell with sinful people. How can a holy God draw near to sinful people? That's the problem that Leviticus is addressing. And then you see there are other actual specific narratives in Leviticus that address a particular problem. So think back to Nadab and Abihu. You remember Nadab and Abihu, these arrogant priests who try and go into the Holy of Holies? The Bible says they, they, they offered unauthorized fire, which actually sets the, the, the stage for Moses addressing the Day of Atonement. And so you see in Leviticus there is this a uh, pattern wherein things happen and then pr- the problems arise and, and, and a solution is given to that problem. And you're going to see a problem that is presented here that ties into everything we're talking about. So, so what is the problem? Uh, look again with me at verse 10. Let me read uh, the, the, the little narrative section there for you again. One more time. Verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalometh, the daughter of Debris of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. So you've got a young man who's half Hebrew, half Egyptian, who not only assaults a person, but in the midst of that altercation commits the sin of blasphemy. The text says he blasphemed the name. And of course, that name is the name of God. He blasphemed Yahweh and cursed. Now, we'll talk more about blasphemy in a moment. But for now, it, it seems like he's spoken against God. Right? He's, he's cursed his name in some way that denigrates the character of God. Now, here's the issue. I said the story presents a problem. Now, what's the problem? 
What's the question? After that happens, the people don't really know what to do with him. So they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear. You see that? It's like, this has happened, and we're not entirely sure what to do, so we're going to bring this man to Moses and ask him, what's the will of the Lord when, when this happens? Now, the question or the problem or what's strange about this is, why, is there, why are the people confused about what should be happening right now? It seems pretty straightforward. He's broken the third commandment. You know the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 27. Just two chapters later, again, repeated, is God's condemnation of all those who revile the Lord. And that word reviles, the same word, blaspheme. And then later in the Old Testament, we see in 1 Kings, we see that a man named Naboth is stoned to death on the false accusation of two men that say he blasphemed God. And you probably remember that it was on the case and on the charge of blasphemy that Stephen and the Lord Jesus Christ are killed. So it seems clear to Israel and the rest of its history that when a Hebrew commits the sin of blasphemy, the result, the consequence is death. It's pretty straightforward. When you blaspheme Yahweh, when you curse the name of God, the consequence is death. But here they hesitate. Why? I think the answer lies in the fact that he's half Jewish and half Egyptian. Here's the question. Here's the problem. Is the, should the full force of the law be brought to bear on someone who is only part Jewish. So they bring the man to Moses with this question. What do we do? Half Hebrew, half Egyptian. Does the, does the law, should the law fall on this man in full force? And this is the Lord's answer. Verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, now listen, whoever, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. Now listen, and you get this little phrase, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So you see, there's the answer to the question, the answer to the problem. What do we do? He's half Hebrew, he's half Egyptian. And God says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. Whoever curses God shall bear his sin. Hear the emphasis on the word whoever. God does not show partiality. All are held accountable under the law. Do you see? God is fair. No one is freed from the guilt of their sin because of their class, because of their gender, because of their socioeconomic status, because of their race. No, whoever curses God, whoever curses God shall bear his sin. And look, God is going to apply this principle of impartiality to the rest of the law as well in the following verses. You get to that next part where you see the little heading eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Okay, you're going to see him applying it to other areas of the law. Listen to the the refrain of whoever, right? Verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Anyone who injures his neighbor as he has done it shall be done to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. And then again this refrain. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So, and here's the conclusion, verse 23. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. And here's the point. God is there, and God is fair. He does not show partiality. He, he, he is indiscriminate in his application of the law. 
everyone without exception is accountable to his judgment. This is a point that is sharply reiterated in the New Testament, by the way. Paul writes this in Romans 2. He says, he, that is God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Do you hear those words? There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God, why? What is the reason? What's the underlying grounding principle of this? For God shows no partiality. And now what I want you to see is that in this man, this half Egyptian, half Jewish man, what you have is a little picture, a little illustration of every human being on the planet. An illustration and a picture of you. And an illustration and a picture of me. It's a terrifying illustration of everyone's condition before a just God. And, and now maybe you'll say, Maybe you'll say that this man has committed the sin of blasphemy, and I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it seems like this was really serious. And I, I'm pretty sure that I haven't done anything this serious to warrant the, the law of God falling on me in this way. What is the sin of blasphemy? Let's talk about it. There's no exact Hebrew word for blasphemy. It's actually a, uh, comes from the, the Greek word blasphemia, which means to slander or to revile or to disdain. That's, that's what our English word blasphemy is trying to capture. It's to, to revile God or to denigrate God, to belittle God, to curse God. And now listen, here's another component. Sometimes we, we tend to think of blasphemy strictly in the, the confines of speech, right? Blasphemy is, is when we curse God with our mouth, with our words. Now listen, don't hear me saying it's less than that. I'm sure there's, there's no one in this room that can raise their hand and say that I have never ever taken the Lord's name in vain with my speech. But it's more than that. It's more than, it's more than just using God's name in, in, in a way that is careless and, and does not uphold the honor of his character. Theologians uh, throughout church, church history have thought of blasphemy as something far more broad than just speech. I'll give you one example. Uh, an old Puritan, Puritan named William Gurnall writes this. He says, when a man, he's defining blasphemy. He says, when a man does, that's action. Speaks, that's words. Or thinks, it's our thoughts. Anything derogatory to the holy nature of or works of God with an intent to reproach him or his ways, this properly is blasphemy. To not honor the Lord and his character and his worth and his beauty and his glory, to fall short of doing that with your speech, with your actions, or with your thoughts, is to become guilty of the sin of blasphemy. You see, the connection isn't quite clear in this passage, but there seems to be a link between the fact that this man is fighting and also that what results is him cursing the name. There seems to be a connection between his words and his actions. That we are blasphemers when we act, think, or speak in any way that does not honor God properly as the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and blessing. And so we are every bit as guilty as this man. And so look what happens. Verse 14, God tells Moses to have the people bring him outside the camp. To have everyone who heard this man's blasphemy lay their hands on his head and stone him. That, that picture of all those who are in the hearing of his voice coming and laying their hands on his head is, is God saying, 
Everyone in the congregation is going to come and testify and bear witness against this man. And laying their hands on his head, they're going to symbolically say, your guilt is on your own head. And so one after another, the people of the congregation are going to walk up and lay their hand on this man's head. Symbolizing guilt upon guilt upon guilt upon guilt upon sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. But finally, it's, it's the hand of God that lays on his head. The judgment of God on his head. You see, they go to Moses and they're like, what do we do? And it's God who renders this judgment. right? It's not Moses that says, hey, here's what I think we should do. Moses goes to the Lord and it's the Lord who renders this judgment. And so finally, it's, it's the hand of God that lays upon this man's head. It's the hand of God of God's judgment coming down upon his sin. It's justice. It's righteousness. It's God being fair. You see that? Who can condemn God for being unjust here? Is God obligated to be gracious? Is he obligated to be merciful? No, this is what we want, right? We want accountability. You, 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 you turn on the, the, the news, and, and you're, you're going to hear lots about people being accountable, right? But politicians need to be accountable. You think about the tragedy in Texas, and the whole you know, news storyline is, who do we blame for this? Surely, we can, we can lay blame at the feet of this disturbed young man that went in and killed all these children and, and these teachers, but surely there's other people to blame. Who's accountable? We want accountability. We want there to be justice. We want there to be fairness. We want there to be righteousness meted out, justice meted out. What we learn here is that God is a God of justice. That all sin will finally be accounted for and punished. Whoever curses God shall bear his sin. Hear those words this morning. Take them into your heart. And apart from Christ, the burden of your sin rests on you. And and how could it be any different? They are your sins. They are my sins. And so you constantly carry the burden of sin's penalty and sin's plague. Think of John 3, 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The burden The wrath of God for sin remains on him. The God who is there, the God who is fair. But brothers and sisters, there is a God who will bear. A God who will bear. What does he bear? In Jesus Christ, he comes and and bears the sins of his people. And takes upon his own back the burden and the weight of our sin. I think of uh, David in in, in the Psalms. Uh, He he, Probably one of the best, if you're looking for a, a psalm to pray when you feel burdened by the weight of your sin, Psalm 38. Listen to David's words. Tell me if you can't resonate with this. David prays, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. You hear that? Your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. If by God's Spirit you have come to feel the heaviness and the burden of your sin, then you can resonate with David's words here. But look how this psalm ends. Look how this prayer ends. Psalm 38, verse 21, he says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. 
Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Now, kids, I'm, I'm coming at you again. Kids, have you ever been given by your parents something really heavy to, to carry? Something so heavy, you knew you couldn't drop it. Maybe it was a little fragile. But what I have in my mind is when Lindsay comes home from grocery shopping, we usually have a stack of like cases of seltzer because we're those people that just drink seltzer way too much. Uh, but sometimes we'll put, you know, a case of seltzer, you know, in the hands of one of our kids, and they're trying to, you know, carry it into the house. So kids, have you ever been given something really heavy that you knew you couldn't drop, and it's so heavy, and you, you, you're, you're just on the verge, you're about to drop it? Well, what is the kind of help that you need? You, you know if you drop it, it's going to break, or it's going to splatter all over the place, and it's, and it's weighing you down, and you can't carry it, and it's the last final second that you can't get. What is the help that you need? What, what do you need in that moment? David's crying out, Lord, I'm burdened. I'm, it's weighing down on me. Come to my help. Come help me. And what is the help that David needs, and what is the help that, that you would need in that? Go ahead. What do you think? You need? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you need someone to carry it. I was, but I... it's all right Uh, you need someone to come along and and pick it up for you and carry the burden and look this is exactly what the Lord does he comes and he he puts the burden on his own back now listen here's what's amazing about this passage all this imagery about the congregation coming and laying their hands on the head of this man do you know what that is it's actually a callback to Leviticus 16 to the day of atonement Leviticus 16, verse 21. We've read this before, but hear it again. The scapegoat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. You see, here in Leviticus, we sort of have to stay, take one step back to take two steps forward, right? The, 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 the congregation comes and lays their hands upon this man, and he has to bear his guilt. And yet if we go back in Leviticus 16, we see that God has made a way. He's made a way whereby our sins can be placed on another. And all of this is a pointer, right? The scapegoat, the high priest laying his hands and confessing over the scapegoat the sins of the people is ultimately a pointer to the great sacrificial lamb, to the, to the perfect scapegoat, to the son of God who would come into the world to bear the sins of his people, right? And Jesus God takes on the burden of our sin. He lives a perfect life. Honoring God in speech, in thought, and act. Never a blasphemous thought or intention in Jesus' heart. But you already mentioned this in passing. But do you know, do you know what the charge is that ultimately leads to the condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus? Do you know what the charge is? Jesus is condemned what? Hmm? Someone, someone said it. A blasphemer. He's contemned a blasphemer. And then you get this picture in the garden. You remember Jesus in the garden being pressed down into the dust as God holds out to him the cup. What is the cup? That cup is the burden of your sin. It's the weight of carrying your sin. And as Jesus begins to see what it will take in order to reconcile his people to God, as he sees the weight that he is going to have to bear, he's pressed down into the dust sweating drops of blood. And then a, a, a crown of thorns is pressed down onto his brow. Do you know why it's a crown of thorns? I've mentioned this to you before. You know, what, you know what thorns are? They are the symbol of God's judgment in Genesis 3. What happens because of the curse? Thorns and thistles. And now the symbol of that curse, of that judgment, is now laid upon the head of Jesus. And just as the man, do you remember? The man is brought outside of the camp to be stoned. And so Jesus is brought outside the city of Jerusalem where he will be crucified. You know, this reminds me of of Abraham and Isaac. You remember Abraham and Isaac? 
Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain and God commands Abraham to, to, uh, to, to sacrifice his own son. And Abraham ties his son up and he's got the, he's got the knife ready to come down. And then do you, know what the, do you know what God says? You know what God says to Abraham in that moment? He says, do not lay your hand upon the boy. Don't lay your hand upon the boy. And we say, oh man, what a happy ending. Isaac gets to live. But, but don't you see, it's, it's not a happy ending. It's, it's just an intermission. Because thousands of years later, the hand of the Lord was going to be raised against his one and only son. But this time he was not going to stay his hand. His hand was going to come down in full force upon the head of his son. See, when God's only son was tied up and placed on the altar, on the cross, there God's heavy hand of judgment comes down upon him. God lays the hand of his judgment for all the sins of his people upon the head of Jesus Christ. Hey, 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself, that Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep, as we read this earlier, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is the hand of God's judgment coming down upon the head of Jesus? He never blasphemed. He never spoke a word of dishonor to the Lord. It's coming down as it should have come down upon you. His hand of judgment is coming down upon the Savior, upon Jesus, instead of you. He's standing in your place. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The man's taken outside the city in stone, and there on the cross, Jesus is absolutely crushed into dust under the wrath of God for sin. You see, a transaction, an exchange is taking place Right? For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so now, listen, listen, what, listen to what happens. The declaration of the law, the declaration of the law is whoever curses God shall bear his sin. But the promise of the gospel is whoever believes in his name will have eternal life. Do you see? The promise. So now that all who, who come to Jesus, the sin bearer in faith, he says, come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, exchange, let's exchange your burden of sin for my burden, for my yoke, my light yoke of blessing and righteousness. Psalm 139.5, David writes this, he says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's interesting there because David says you lay your hand upon me, but he's not saying you lay your hand upon me in judgment. He's saying you lay your hand upon me in blessing. And so do you see what has happened at the cross? Do you see what has happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? God comes to Jesus and lays his hand of judgment upon the head of Christ so that he can lay his hand of blessing upon you. Praise God. And it's when you see, back to this question, I've been building all this time to answer this question. How is it that you lay the weight aside, the sin which clings so closely, so that you might run with endurance the race that is set of faith? It's when you stand there at the foot of the cross and see him bearing the weight of your sin for you. I, I, I gave you, the, the last time I was behind this pulpit, uh, I gave you the little story uh, from Pilgrim's Progress about Christian. And do you remember, I'm not going to give it to you again, but it's there. It's finally there. When Christian comes to the foot of the cross, that's when the burden comes off. That's when the burden falls off his shoulders. When you see at the cross Jesus bearing your sin for you. It's in seeing Christ that your burden of sin is lifted and you are set free to run with, with joy and with endurance. Right? It's, it's, it's there at the cross when the burden of sin falls off and you are liberated to obey God. Not out of duty, not out of fear, but out of a response to his grace. 
It's there, listen, it's there when the burden is lifted, when you're actually set free to, to boldness in your evangelism. I think most of the time what prohibits us, I shouldn't say most, I don't know. A lot of the time what prohibits us from being bold in our proclamation of the gospel is our own seared consciences. Because we still feel the weight of the burden of sin. We're not living in, as, as David would say, the joy of our salvation. right? If you would live in the joy of it, not trying to carry the burden on your own, but looking to the all-sufficient Savior who says, I've carried it. And not only did I carry it, it went into the tomb with me and it's done. Then you would have joy that would sustain you and give you boldness and rest and peace. You know, I think of uh, the old, I don't know if it's John Bunyan. Uh, most people say it's John Bunyan. It could be someone else, but it's a wonderful quote. The, the, the quote is this, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. When you stand at the foot of the cross, it's there the burden of sin falls off the shoulder and you're set free to run the race of faith with endurance, with joy, with peace, with rest, and with a, with a voice that sings what we'll sing in a moment. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. It's there at the cross where you are assured of the love of your Savior who took your burden, who was crushed under the wrath of God in your place so that you can know the hand of God's blessing upon you. Live in the joy of it. Rest in the finished work and obey your God out of a response to his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is not only there and fair, you're just, you're righteous, but you are the God who sees us, who sees us bearing the burden of our sin and comes to us in your son Jesus Christ into the world to take the burden of our sin. That it might be nailed to the cross so that we might bear it no more. Lord, help us to live in the joy and the freedom of this reality. Help us not in pride to think we can carry the burden of our own sin. Help us to lay it at the foot of the cross that we might run the race of faith with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated now at your right hand. Lord, do this for the sake of our joy in you and for your glory here and to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.